Hello and welcome to Our American States, a podcast from the National Conference of State Legislatures. This podcast is all about legislatures, the people in them, the policies, process, and politics that shape them. I'm your host, Ed Smith. I actually became a widow before I was 30 years old, which you definitely never see your life panning out that way. That was Karen Allen, a keynote speaker and author of Stop and Shift, a mental exercise to reset your mind. She's also the creator of 100% Human, a website and community that includes courses and a blog. Allen was a speaker at NCSL's Forecast 23 meeting in December. Allen talked about why the mental strengthening approach she's developed can help legislators and legislative staff, especially during the extraordinary stress of legislative session. She also discussed employee retention, tools to avoid burnout, and the importance of resilience. A key point she made was that one of the keys to being human is to accept that life is messy and uncertain. Here's our discussion. Karen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ed. I'm happy to be here. So Karen, why don't you start by telling listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you do today? In short, I clumsily found my way. <laughs> I think that that's kind of the story for many folks is I never thought that I was going to be doing this work. However, one of my favorite Steve Jobs quotes is, you may not always know the direction you're going, but you can always turn back and connect those dots. And for me, I definitely see a lot of connected dots in my background. But the crucial moment that led me to diving deeper into studying the human mind was the unfortunate event of losing my husband at a very young age. I actually became a widow before I was 30 years old, which you definitely never see your life panning out that way. My husband was an entrepreneur. He was actually a CrossFit owner. And unfortunately, on this particular day, he was doing CrossFit classes and someone walked in while he was teaching his class and he was gunned down and he never saw it coming. Uh, at that time, my background was in HR and I was a recruiter. Uh, so I wasn't in the gym with him. I was actually home with our two-year-old son and I was doing interviews from home when I got the call from one of the members at the gym. And so I just remember once I got to the gym and I was at, in the parking lot and it was chaotic. I mean, it was everything that you think it would be with all the first responders there, people from the community, even news vans and reporters were already on scene by the time I got there. And I just had this moment that I was sitting behind a bush, rocking back and forth, thinking to myself, this can't be real. Like this cannot be happening. And I share that in my keynote because I found that this experience of going through challenges, whether they're epic challenges, you know, huge life-changing moments, or even these small like daily disruptors that are stressful and they compound over time, that at some point or another as humans, we find ourselves thinking like, what do I do right now? Now what? Where do I, where do I go from here? And I'll tell you, Ed, I had many of those moments, many, several of those moments, because after losing my husband, I actually lost my house, my car, my job, and being a single parent, all of those things, any one of those things would be heavy to deal with, but having all of them to try and manage in one year, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but again, this is how I could turn back and connect the dots, but out of desperation, 
and wanting to not lose my life because I knew that my son, I, I didn't want his story to be that he lost both parents. I decided that I was going to dig in my heels and really reframe my mindset where I could feel the pain and I could heal from it, but it wasn't going to hold me back from living the rest of my life because my son needed me. He needed me to be a healthy and happy and whole mom so that his life could continue. And so he was my North Star, but it was from that place and from listening to my intuition, I stumbled across a lot of learning around post-traumatic growth and positive psychology. And again, once I could see the patterns that I had established in my life to rebuild my life, I found that a lot of it was rooted in those studies of positive psychology, neuroplasticity, and so on and so forth. So because that saved my life, I just felt like, man, I wish we could normalize this conversation around mental strength training. I wish we could learn some of these skills uh, around our brain and how we can rewire our brain when we go through stress or trauma. And from that point, I just continued to experience accelerated growth personally. And so I decided to marry my personal and professional life by just sharing everything that had really helped me reclaim my life. Thank you for, for giving us that background. I think that Steve Jobs quote is great. It's such a wonderful observation because especially when you get to my age, which is quite a bit older than you are, and you look back, I think you do see how those dots connect. I, I think it makes you realize trying to make a plan for your life when you're 20 years old is probably a, a good effort, but not likely to end up turning out exactly that way. This issue of positive psychology and post-traumatic stress growth, we did a podcast a couple of years ago for Legislative Staff Week, and that really was the topic. It was a, a subject I was not that familiar with, but quite interesting. Be interested to hear a little bit more about that. Can you talk a little bit about how this is relevant for our audience, which is largely legislators and legislative staff? How, how do these lessons you've learned and these techniques you've developed, how do, how do they apply to them? You know, I think the biggest application, having not been a legislator or ever served on legislative staff, but the biggest application is when you learn how to build different muscles in your brain, and when you develop these different mental skills, what's happening is you're creating a strong and healthy brain that allows you to be thoughtful about the mindset that you're carrying into any given situation. And the biggest, the biggest application for anyone is really in these moments of stress. Because what happens is when we're stressed, and, and I imagine for um, anyone in the legislative branch that a couple of things that I know, number one, you're dealing with all sorts of personalities all the time. <laughs> and you never know uh, if that person just came out of a stressful meeting and what they may be dumping on you. You may only have a few minutes to connect with somebody and passing. And not to mention, you're working at an accelerated rate because of the shortened time that you're in session to actually get these things done. And so all of this is compounded stress. So when I think about how this applies, it's really how can I show up with my mind clear, calm, and composed? Because when your mind is just operating from a composed state, you are more thoughtful and intentional about everything, about the words, about how the conversation is flowing so you can adapt in the midst of that conversation. And really what it does is it helps you to take this perspective that isn't from an emotionally charged place, but really from a place of how can I best serve so that we can experience progress. 
And that's a very important place for all of us to operate from because our emotions aren't always based in truth. They're really just based on what is being heightened at that moment. So we need to be able to regroup quickly, to recover quickly, and to respond to what's actually happening. And that's where I think this is going to be like a key component, especially when you're working on a short period of time. You don't want to have to backtrack and think, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that, or maybe I could have gone about it a different way. If you practice being present and in the moment, then you are going to be able to, and this is something I'm a little bit nerdy about, the prefrontal cortex, which is the CEO of our brain, that's where all good decisions come from. But when we're emotionally charged and the cortisol, which is the stress hormone, is firing off in our brain, it actually takes that CEO offline. So you need to be able to re-engage your CEO when you're in the midst of a conversation that matters most. And I would anticipate that all of these conversations, especially when you're in session, they matter a lot. So wouldn't you want to bring your best to the table? Well, you're absolutely right about the stress situation because while these are, I think, stressful jobs generally, when the set, when you're in session and you have a limited amount of time to get legislation through, that is complicated and difficult. And so I think that's very apt and pertains to them a great deal. Let me ask you about your book, Stop and Shift. This came out last year offers a guide to this mental health approach and technique. And I know you've written a whole book about it, (laughs) so maybe it's presumptuous for me to ask you to summarize it, but I'm going to ask you if you could just summarize it for listeners. Yeah, this this was something that it was the exercise I started doing innately, and I didn't really know that I was doing it until my mom asked me this question one day. She said, what do you think you did to start the healing journey? Like, how, how did you get from that place of complete devastation to now and, and with this mindset that's really renewed? And so I was lying on the floor because that's where I do my best work. When I'm just lying down, meditating, thinking what this is. And in doing so, I noticed that I was able to visualize my thoughts and I could pull myself out of a negative thought loop just by redirecting my focus. And so that got me thinking about, well, really, what is a thought? And a thought is just an attention. Like it, it really is just a focal point of our attention, which then made me feel empowered. Well, if I don't like a thought, that means that I can choose a new one. So I started to play with this idea of how can I choose my thoughts in a more intentional way that serves my growth or that serves the good of of the situation around me. I had to really break it down. And the stop portion of this, it showed me how important it is to listen to the voice in our head. Because a lot of times if we're not tuning in, it's going to take us on a wild ride. (laughs) So stop is all about the voice. And this part of the exercise is rooted in mindfulness. Because when you check in with the present moment, then you can uh, more consciously respond to what's actually happening instead of maybe the stories we're creating in our mind. So stop being rooted in mindfulness drops you into the present moment. You just say, okay, what's actually happening here? How do I need to respond? What's going on inside of me? What do I need to regulate? What is this other person doing? So it really just, again, brings you into the present moment. Well, then shift, you can drop into the present moment. And let's just say you're by yourself. There's no one else there. You are just stuck in a thought loop that is unhealthy or unhelpful. And so if you find yourself in that space, you can literally say to yourself, wait, hold on, stop. What's going on here? Okay, do I want to continue down this road with this thought? Do I want to lean into this? 
Or if it's not helpful and if it is harmful, then how can I redirect my thoughts to a new direction that is going to give me what I need to be productive in this moment? And that's the shift. But shift is actually rooted in positive psychology because what we really want to do, I think this is the truest essence of all humans, is we hope to show up as our best. It's just we're human and we're not always going to show up as our best. But when you stop and you check in with yourself and then you practice the shift, that shift is really a question of how can I show up in this moment as the person I've always intended to be? And then you align your choices, your words, your thoughts, your next action with being that person, with being the kind person or the patient parent or or the calm voice in the room. And so when we stop and we notice what's going on, that leaves room for us to process. But then the shift is the intentional action of showing up in a way that is going to contribute good to any given scenario, whether it's something you're dealing with internally or maybe it's an external relationship in the moment. Let me ask you, as this new legislative session begins, the issue of employee retention in legislatures. Now, this is a big issue everywhere. This is, was, I believe, the number one policy issue that was discussed at the meeting that NCSL just had. I think you've written about this a little bit, about how to work with people, how to hold on to your talented staff. You just talk about that a little bit. I think people would be very interested in hearing your approach. Yeah, well, you know, I've always believed in uh, human-centric leadership and creating these workplaces that are really focused on their people. Now, again, I, my background is HR. So even when I entered HR, I had that mindset, but uh, was quickly shocked at how much it is about policy and not just about people in the HR world. Uh, but my heart stayed true. I, I Not only did I know this years ago, but there's so much evidence that just shows that when you create workplaces where people feel valued for who they are, and I don't mean like how they're identifying or the relationships that they have or anything like that. But like just at a basic level human being, when you can connect in that space, so many things grow. Trust, respect. Um, it even accelerates creativity and innovation because what happens is when you talk about creating human-centric workplaces, that's what people want to feel because then they feel safe. And when you talk about feeling safe, part of what we have to consider in the conversation is that we are imperfect humans. So when we talk about a human-centric workplace and we talk about one that's safe, it leaves room for imperfection. The problem is that somewhere along the line, I think somebody spiked our juice boxes when we were younger because we have all in some way, shape or form uh, created this thought in our mind that we can create a perfect problem-free life if we do the right things if we check the right boxes. And that's not true. I mean, if anything, this uh, global pandemic that we lived through a couple of years ago was a huge shock to our systems that you can do everything that you think is in your power and things are still going to turn out in ways that you would not be able to imagine. But that is true in our in ourself as well, is that we can try our best and maybe a mistake happens. In a safe environment, a mistake is not a failure. It's an opportunity to grow. Or in an environment where we accept diverse perspectives, it may be a messy and a clumsy conversation to get to the end goal, but are all voices welcomed at the table as we problem solve? And that's what it really means to have this human-centric workplace. So going back to your question is, what do people want? They want permission to be human. 
I really truly believe when people were talking about this great resignation that was happening and and how much people are, are, are leaving, you know, the traditional workforce to find their own, it wasn't that. I, and I believe this was Simon Sinek who said it. He said, people are no longer accepting subpar cultures. That was it. That was the biggest change is that now people say, hey, listen, I'm willing to do hard work. I just want to do it in a more human way. And that is how we not only attract, but retain top talent is we really give space and we celebrate the human element of work. Thanks, Karen. We'll be right back with the rest of our discussion after this short break. Rely on state legislature's news on the NCSL website for the freshest takes on people, places, and policy. Find out what states are doing about the biggest issues of the day. And check out the Across the Aisle and My District features for compelling stories of bipartisanship and special places and events. Make SLN your daily go-to for all the hottest legislative topics and trends. Just click on the News tab on the NCSL website, www.ncsl.org. The term burnout, the concept of people just coming to the end of their rope at work. And, and I think that people who work in the legislative world, particularly legislative staff, we certainly heard a lot of that, particularly at certain times of year when people are in session. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that as, a, as an individual? And maybe how do you deal with that as a leader trying to help people avoid that? Yeah, well, this is another component of being human. Surprise, we cannot just keep going and going and going like the Energizer Bunny. (laughs) In fact, we need to rest. We need to recover. Our brains are literally wired to need recovery. It's something called the BRAC, our BRAC, which is the basic rest activity cycle. And this is the cycle that our brain goes through where we can work from anywhere from 90 to 120 minutes in concentrated flow. But after that time, our brain literally drops down into low power mode. And the CEO of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, isn't able to keep going with all the good decisions or the problem solving or or even willpower. Those things and focus. They all come from this space. So if our brain is wired to take a rest, then why do we keep pushing forward? Well, that's where burnout comes in because we haven't honored the natural rhythm of our body and our brain to recover and then come back with renewed energy, which increases your capacity to learn, to be more agile and problem solving. And you know who actually has this like really done well? Elite athletes. Elite athletes are trained to not just go hard in the weight room or on the field or or in the pool or what have you. They're also in that training regimen. They also build in days and multiple times through, not just days in their weeks, but multiple times throughout the day where that is designated rest and recovery time. And actually the chief people officer from HubSpot, she actually said this really well. They made a huge shift in their culture where they made rest a part of their operations. And I think any organization or workspace that gives their uh, people permission, again, permission to be human, means that they're also giving them permission to build in rest and recovery. Because while we think that stepping away is unproductive, it's incredibly productive because it helps us to then re-enter our workspace with new clarity, with new energy, maybe even a new zest or zeal for, for this work that we're doing. And so in order to combat burnout, 
It really is a proactive approach. And that approach is making sure that as individuals and also as leaders that we set the example for our people, but we encourage it, we build it in um, to build in that time for recovery. It's essential for our growth and for our for sustainable success. Well, I wanted to ask you what you meant by being human. And I think you've given given us some of that. Some of it is accepting uncertainty, I guess. It's allowing ourselves to be imperfect. What other things would you point out? What what are other aspects, just as we as we think about this notion of being human? I, I guess part of it is not being too hard on ourselves. Absolutely. I, I and really first starting with just accepting that life is imperfect and so are we. And that's okay. This is something that I uh, I mentioned in my keynote. So if this, a listener is hearing this and you were at the conference, you'll remember this. You know, the question, the acceptance, I'll say, is that life is messy. We need to just accept that life is messy. But then the question becomes, well, how can I make life beautiful in the mess? And when I think about humanity, I think about just how different we all are. You know, we're taught and told it's a common knowledge that all of our fingerprints are different. Everybody, even identical twins, our fingerprints are different, but everything is different about us. Our brain print is different. The way that I would respond from a creative space is going to be different than my next counterpart, right? So all of this is so unique, which actually is our strength. So when I think about how can we be more human in the workplace and and how can we connect more human to human, heart to heart, yes, it is about the the messiness, um, but it's also about giving ourselves grace because we're embracing that. But the other part that I think is, is really important to just note is that when it comes to being human, we have this unique opportunity to invest in ourselves in a way that creates a ripple effect around us. Like when people are focused on their personal growth, it changes the way they show up in rooms. It changes the way that they, they um, contribute to spaces. And that encourages and inspires others to tap into their personal strength or to not be limited maybe by their mindset or their current circumstance. So one of the ways that I like to really encourage leaders to consider this is when you're thinking about creating this human-centric workplace, don't think about the person uh, as the job title that they hold. Don't think about them in just the role that they play and the responsibilities listed in their job description because they are so much more. As humans, I think there are infinite possibilities when we tap into a healthy and a strong mindset. And again, going back to the fact that we're all so different, I can't imagine or I would love to imagine, I should say, a world where we're not limited, but instead we are celebrated for our uniqueness, for our differences, because I just see us growing and evolving at a completely new rate. And to me, that's exciting. The word resilience has come up a lot when I've interviewed people over the years about the kind of critical tools people need to be successful. But I'm not sure that everyone means the same thing when they say resilience. And I, I wonder how how you think of that issue, that term. I remember thinking, I'll, I'm going to back up to not my work, but my personal story. I remember thinking, am I going to run out of resilience? <laughs> when I was going through all those different hardships, you know, at that time, uh, when I wasn't studying positive psychology, I thought I was going to tap out. And I felt times where I was running on E, Absolutely. 
But what I found was resilience commonly is thought to be something that we would run out of, just like joy or peace. But we usually think that in the midst of stressful situations. So I was very happy to learn that resilience is actually a mental muscle that we can build. And I think of it more from the space of mental strength training. That's how I think actually of mental health is one area of mental well-being. Mental strength training is another area. And the third area or pillar, it would be uh, mental performance. And so when I think about those three areas, resilience falls underneath the mental strength training because there are things that we can proactively do that will build our resilience, which will help us to persevere through those tough times. You know, one thing that uh, I love to do that audience can't see this, but you see that I have a guitar in the back. (laughs) And so trying new things, by the way, I don't play the guitar. I just strum a little bit. I know how to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, but I intentionally picked up something that I knew uh, that I couldn't do. I picked up something that was going to be difficult to learn because I have no idea where to put my hands or my fingers. But by doing that, I presented a challenge in my life that would allow my brain to respond to it in a way that I had complete control over. That's a proactive approach to saying, hey, let me try to put myself in a situation that feels uncomfortable that I really, I don't have any knowledge about this. So I'm just kind of winging it here unless you go on YouTube, which is what I do. (laughs) But in doing so, you're showing yourself that I can do hard things. That if something completely new is in front of me, that I will be able to adapt and respond. And more than anything, and I think this is something that we, again, learned during the challenging two years, is that I can embrace uncertainty and I don't have to feel afraid of it. Because when you are faced with uncertainty and you really don't know what curveball is going to throw you off the path, what you have to lean into is trusting yourself that even if you don't have everything you need in the moment, that you have the capacity to get through this hardship. And that's resilience. That's perseverance, right? And so I like to introduce it in a way in my life. And I do this with my 11-year-old son. It's like, let's do something hard or let's do something different. It doesn't always have to be hard. And in doing so, I think those are little, you know, small exercises that help to build our resilience because it just shows us that I can get through this, even if I have no idea where to start. Well, Karen, this has been a fascinating conversation. And I think a lot of good things for people to think about as they go into what is probably going to be a stressful few months for them in the legislature. I thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Take care. You're so welcome. Thank you, Ed. I've been talking with Karen Allen, author of Stop and Shift, a mental exercise to reset your mind, about mental strengthening tools that can help you deal with stress and build resilience. You can check out all the podcasts from the National Conference of State Legislatures by searching for NCSL Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Tim Story, NCSL's CEO, hosts Legislatures, the Inside Story, where he focuses on leadership and legislatures. On the Across the Aisle podcast, host Kelly Griffin tells stories of bipartisanship. Also try our special series, Building Democracy, on the history of legislatures.